All right, well, welcome again to this gathering of Providence Baptist Church. We are very, very glad that you are here. We're going to be in Matthew 5 this morning, continuing our series on vintage Christianity through the Sermon on the Mount. And particularly today, what we're going to be talking about is how is the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament. Now, when Jeff was reading just a minute ago, he said the law and the prophets, that's that's code for Old Testament. The law represents the first five books of uh, the Bible. It's called the Torah. And then the prophets kind of encapsulates everything else. And so when you hear law and prophets or you see law, prophets, and writings in the New Testament, that is referring to the Old Testament. And so we're going to be talking today about the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament. And it's a relationship that there's been a lot of questions about throughout history and really not a lot of questions as much as a lot of erroneous ideas. There's been a lot of erroneous ideas from uh, even like that, that all of the Old Testament is to be kept today, that we're to follow all of the Old Testament to on the complete opposite end of the spectrum that the Old Testament is to totally be jettisoned and thrown out. That's an ancient heresy called Marcionism from the first century. And yet, every now and then, it gets tooted again like a horn. Even two years ago, there was a pastor in Atlanta named Andy Stanley, and he tooted that horn and said, quote, the greatest need for Christians today is to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. And so, what then is the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament? Are we to keep it all? Are we to throw it all out? What's the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament? Well, that's the question that Jesus himself answers in Matthew 5, starting in verse 17 today. And he answers it kind of sensing that it's the question that his, his listeners, as he's preaching this Sermon on the Mount, are asking. Because if you think about it, thus far in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has talked about the fact that we can become part of the kingdom of God by grace... All right? He's given a, a description, a, a describers of what kingdom citizens look like. That's what the Beatitudes are. He's talked about salt and light, but he has not yet one time mentioned the Old Testament law. And so his listeners seem to be kind of wondering about that. And then you, you know, kind of add to that, think through the fact that Jesus' lifestyle... Like There's no doubt that his lifestyle was in direct conflict with the traditional Jewish interpretations, key word, of the Old Testament. Because he was friends with women. Oh, the horror and agony of it all. He had followers who were women. He was a friend of sinners. Again, oh, the horror and agony of it all. But the rabbinical teaching of the day was like, that's not right. And Jesus just flies all over the face of that. And then on top of that, Jesus declared that all foods were clean. He healed on the Sabbath. He limited the freedom of men in that culture to just divorce their wives for any reason. He declared people forgiven on his own authority. He cast recognized and well-respected businessmen out of the temple for their pre-approved job of money changing, which they lined their pockets with. And so listeners had to be thinking, is this guy advocating 
that we unhitch from the Old Testament? Is he advocating abolishing the law and the prophets? And in answering this question, Jesus teaches us four key things about the Old Testament. Four key truths about the Old Testament. And as you can see in your sermon guide, if you have that before you, whether in this room or online, based upon the way I laid it out, we're going to spend the bulk of our time on the first one. Because I think if we kind of understand the first one, the other ones start to fall in line a little more easily. And so we're going to spend the bulk of our time, but we will hit all four. But we'll be in number one for a while. And so to get us going on this, let's refresh our minds with verse 17 to get going on this first. And we'll get verse 17 there, Matthew chapter 5 again. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish. I mean, he's answering the question head on. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so Jesus clearly saying, I didn't come to abolish them, but I did come to fulfill them. Like all the law, all the prophets, like it's my job to fulfill them, which means in other words, all of the Old Testament is about Jesus. He's saying all that is about me. It's fulfilled in me. All of it points to me. And so number one in your notes, that's the first thing I want you to understand. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. All right, so write in your notes, the Old Testament is all about Jesus. It points forward to him in a multitude of ways. Like even typologically, Jesus is the true and better Adam. He's the true and better Abel. He's the true and better Noah, the true and better Abraham, the true and better Isaac, the true and better Jacob, the true and better Joseph, the true and better Moses the true and better rock of Moses, the true and better Job, the true and better David, the true and better Esther, the true and better Jonah. He's the real Passover lamb. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. It points forward to him. But it's not just about him in the predictive and foreshadowing typological ways and it's not just about him in like all the prophecies over 300 of them that he fulfills in his coming his incarnation but like the law itself okay the rules the commandments they are also about jesus they find their fulfillment and their ultimate intended goal and purpose in the life and ministry of Messiah Jesus. He didn't come to abolish them, but he did come to fulfill them. And so you may have heard arguments uh, in the world uh, that flow something like, well, Christians, they just pick and choose which verses of the Old Testament they want to apply. And they ignore the ones that they don't really like. Right? And so, like, as it comes to homosexual debate, oftentimes people will say things like, well, if you're going to hold to the fact that 
homosexuality is a sin, well, then you also need to stop eating pork, and you need to stop eating shrimp, and you need to stop wearing clothes made out of more than one type of fabric, and you need to start stoning adulterers. If you're going to be consistent, if you're going to hold to that, then you've got to start holding all to this. And then they'll trot that out there as an argument, and people who don't know better will be like, oh, wow, snap, they got them, they just blew them up. When all they blew up was their right to try to even speak intelligently about the Bible. They blew up any claim to having any understanding of what they're talking about. Because absolutely there are Old Testament laws we don't observe anymore. And there are absolutely Old Testament laws we are to observe today. And the reason for this is because Jesus has come. He has fulfilled the law. He didn't abolish it, but he did fulfill it. And so by necessity, there are laws we are not to observe anymore because they pointed forward to Jesus and he has come and accomplished them. He's fulfilled them. And that fulfillment is sort of like uh, when you go back to school. Particularly probably high school, college. I don't know if middle school gives out syllabi, if that's the plural. You get a syllabus, right? When you start school, you get a syllabus for the class. And in that syllabus, it details, hey, here's everything you need to do to pass this course. And so as you go through the course, you are doing the the, the coursework, whatever it is, tests, papers, assignments, all that, and you fulfill them. And so once you fulfill them, there's no need to go back and Like, you need to keep fulfilling them like it's been done. It's been accomplished. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I didn't come to abolish the syllabus, but to fulfill it. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And again, it's all, like, because, again, it's all about Jesus. All that law, prophets, that's all about Jesus. And so let's, let's, you know, if we're, if we're here, let's, let's dive in just a little bit more and we show you how the law has been fulfilled. And so to do that, I'm going to give you three kind of categories, broad brush that you can kind of, as you think about the Old Testament law, you can kind of think through. These, these are categories that we look at the law and say, these categories, it's not like the, the, the Bible itself says, all right, here's the ceremonial laws and the civil laws and the moral laws, but this is how we can group them. And it's those three, write that down. When you look at the Old Testament law, you can largely group it in in three groups. Ceremonial, civil, and moral. Ceremonial law, civil law, and moral law. And the ceremonial laws, these are all the Old Testament laws that have to do with all the various sacrifices that have to be offered in the temple to atone for sin. And so there's a whole set of complex rules and commandments dealing with like ceremonial cleanliness as well as these sacrifices, dealing with what food you could and could not eat, the clothes that you could wear, what you could and could not touch, what you, you know, how you could bathe, and like all these sorts of things. Things that you could and could not touch that, that would render you unclean. Right? So if any of you handled your trash yesterday, you would be unclean today. Right? I, I had to handle a little bit of Luther's poop yesterday. He has a healthy colon. I would be ceremonially unclean if that 
law was to still be followed. But the whole point of those ceremonial laws was to convey to the Israelites then, and even us today as we look back upon that time, is that we are spiritually unclean. That we are sinners. That we cannot go into God's presence without being purified. But now for us, Jesus has come. All those things that pointed forward, like Jesus has come and He has been clean for us and He has laid down the once for all time sacrifice for our sins. And so now we have direct access to the Father. I mean, when Jesus died on the cross, the temple, there was a curtain there between the rest of the temple and the Holy of Holies and it was torn from top to bottom recognizing or signifying that we now have direct access to the Father because Jesus has made the once for all time sacrifice and He has purified us by His life, death, and resurrection. I mean, the book of Hebrews, this is largely what it is all about. And it says in chapter 10, listen closely here. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, and by Christ that means Messiah, he sat down at the right hand of God signifying it was done, it was complete, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a, listen, single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so the ceremonial law, quoting Colossians 2.17, is a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so in Christ, the ceremonial law has been fulfilled. He has made us clean. He's offered a once for all time sacrifice. All that it pointed to has been fulfilled in Christ. And so The ceremonial law is no longer binding on Christians. Similarly, the civil law has been fulfilled and isn't binding anymore. Because it was to point to our need for a better king. And so if you remember when we read, if you were part of the church, I don't know if it was a year ago or what it was, we went through 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. And pretty much, after a little while, it became the exact same sermon every single week, which was, this king's terrible, we need a better king. And this king is terrible, we need a better king. Over and over and over. This king is scared, we need a better, is calling out, we need a better king, and that king is Jesus, and he has now come. And so those aspects of the law that were designed for a temporary ethnic religious state, Israel, which was localized in a distinct geographic setting, has been set aside. That has been fulfilled. Messiah has come. And so because Jesus has 
come, lived, died, been buried, resurrected, ascended back into heaven, the ceremonial and civil laws are no longer binding today. And so it's not a random picking and choosing of this and that. It's based upon the fact that Jesus has come and fulfilled these. And to go back and say, hey, we need to live out the ceremonial laws and we need to live out the civil laws would be to deny Jesus and say that his sacrifice was not sufficient. So we need to keep doing those. There's a reason for our observance of some Old Testament laws and not others. Some of them were by God's design provisional and temporary until Christ came. And so civil and ceremonial, those have been fulfilled in Christ and aren't binding on us anymore. Now, moral law. Jesus has fulfilled the moral law in the sense that like, we've all failed Even if we just kept moral law to the Ten Commandments, none of us in here have kept the Ten Commandments. We've all failed. And so Jesus came and kept them for us. Right? We are saved by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. His life. He had to be perfect. He had to be sinless because we weren't. He was a substitute for us. And so he has been sinless for us. And so in that, he has kept the moral law. But the moral law, unlike the ceremonial and civil law, hasn't been set aside because it's not provisional or temporary, but is eternal. Why is it eternal? Because the moral law is a reflection of of, of God's nature and character. And since God does not change or shift, and this is a reflection of his nature and character, the moral law cannot change or shift. It's eternal. It has always been. I mean, think about the eternality of the moral law with me. It was there with Adam and Eve. Even more clearly, it was there with Cain and Abel. Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel and it's called Sin, right there. Now, the Mosaic Law has not been written in stone and handed down to Charlton Heston yet. But it's still called sin. Because the moral law has always been and will always be because it is a reflection of the nature and character of God. Civil and ceremonial, those are temporary things. Moral is an eternal thing. And so the moral law is still binding, which means that everything that the Old Testament says about loving our neighbors, caring for the poor, generosity with our possessions, social relationships, sexuality, gender, a commitment to our family, caring for the environment, the Ten Commandments, all of that is still true. And always will be because it's a reflection of the nature and character of God who is unchanging. And here is the moral law's primary purpose. Its primary purpose is to show us that we don't measure up to the nature and character of God. To God's demands for absolute holiness. It shows us that we are broken. It shows us that we are sick. It shows us that we need a Savior. Again, it's all about Jesus. It's pointing to Him. 
So that's its first purpose. And so you can kind of think of the moral law as like a thermometer or a mirror or an x-ray. Right? So like a thermometer will tell you you have a fever. It will tell you you are sick, but it has no ability to heal you. A mirror will tell you, hey, you're dirty, but it has no ability to clean you. An x-ray will tell you you have a broken leg, but it has no ability to heal you. Those things are diagnostic. They can't fix anything. That's kind of like the first purpose of the Old Testament law today, of the moral law. It's diagnostic. It shows us that we are sick, that we need to be cleaned, that we need to be healed. That's the first purpose of the moral law, to show us our need of Jesus. And so, Galatians 4.4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And Jesus did this by living the perfect life that none of us have lived. A life without sin. Dying the death that all of us have been condemned to die. Death for sin. And rising again to give us a gift we could never earn. Forgiveness of sin. That's how he accomplished this. And when that hits you, when you believe, when you receive the gospel, which is what I just described, the good news, when you repent and place your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are, as Jesus describes it, born again. And you're given a new heart with new desires. You're given new motivations. And now you have a desire to want to obey, not as a means of trying to earn your salvation, but out of love for Christ, you now want to obey Him. He's your Lord and Savior. And so for the Christian, listen real close, obedience is not a condition of knowing God. Rather, it is a sign that you know God. And certainly it's not perfect. God the Father never expects us to be perfect. As believers in Christ. But there is, it is to be true. There is to be a desire. There is to be a pursuit of obedience. And so... Let me just draw for you how these things relate a little bit. Old school technology here. So when you think about the law, all the commandments, all the rules, again, that's to show us that we are broken, that we are sinners. Okay, so law. And that is to drive us to our need of Jesus. It shows us we don't measure up. And so that drives us to the gospel. Teachers, props to you for writing on something flat. That is really hard to do. The law drives us to the gospel. We receive forgiveness for sins based upon what Jesus has done. 
And then out of now a love, like that new heart, that new desire, that new motivations that we want to live out, then that drives us right back to the wall, not as a means of earning salvation, but now as a means of sanctification. And your own good and joy because the law is how God, the moral law is how God designed the world to work. And Father knows best. And so if you are a Christian, listen to me, fighting for obedience is fighting for your own joy. And we don't believe that sometimes. We think, man, I'd be joyful if I just did this thing that I want. It doesn't really hurt anybody. But it's fighting for our own joy. And that's really the second purpose of the wall. The first purpose is to show you a sinner. The second purpose after salvation is to lead you back to the law, to the commandments, the moral law for transformation and joy. All right? And so all of that is kind of a big picture of the law and why we obey some and why we don't obey others. It's not like a willy-nilly choosing. It's Christological and theological. Jesus has come, lived, died, been buried, resurrected, ascended back to the Father, seated at the right hand of the Father, and is coming again. And so that's what the Old Testament is all about. It's all about Jesus, and that's why we obey some of the Old Testament law and not others. To do anything else would be to deny Jesus. All right, so that's number one. Told you it'd take a while, right? We're going to pick up the pace big time. So here we go. Number two. Number two thing that we learn about the Old Testament from Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, number two, is that the Old Testament is true. The Old Testament is true. See, while verse 17 affirms a promise fulfillment understanding of of, of Jesus' view of Scripture as opposed to like a promise abolish paradigm, verse 18 provides the rationale for that which is that the law has to be fulfilled because it's true. Look at verse 18. For truly, literally in Greek it says amen, which means truly or may it be so, I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, some of your translations may say jot or tittle, will pass from the wall until all is accomplished. And so while Jesus absolutely set aside and rejected much of the rabbinical and pharisaical interpretations of the Old Testament, he never once questioned the truthfulness and authority of the Old Testament. Not once. In fact, he says here that it is so perfect and so inerrant and so true and so inspired, it is down to the smallest marks in Hebrew. Literally, yods and seraphs. And so, like, if we were going to write out... I'll flip it for a second. No, I won't. We'll just draw a little arrow here. If we are going to write out Yahweh in Hebrew... 
That's Yahweh in Hebrew. You read it right to left, right? This, and I drew it extra big because I'm trying to let the screen... Oh, I've got to keep it here so they can see it. I'm trying to help the screen be able to see it, but this is really supposed to be the size of an apostrophe. This is called a yod, all right? These little bitty hanging things right here are all serifs. They're tiny little dots. If you're going to apply it to English, it'd almost be like a capital O and a capital Q, little mark, like to distinguish that it's a little bit different, or uh, a capital G and a capital C. They look the same except for a little bitty teeny mark. That's what he's talking about. Yodes and serifs, jots and tittles, dots and iotas, all the same thing. And Jesus is saying scripture is inspired down to the little bitty teeny things. It's true. And so hop on for a minute. The Doc Brown, Marty McFly, DeLorean of your mind. And travel with me to A.D. 30. All right. So we're sitting there at, on the hillside with Jesus as he's teaching, as he's preaching this sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And so in that context, as he says these words, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, yod seraph, will pass from the wall until all is accomplished. So as he's saying that, listen, much of the Old Testament has already been accomplished. For example, the incarnation, right? Jesus is alive. The Messiah has come. He is sitting there. And more will be accomplished in the days to come by his life and ministry. And then his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And then later by the coming of the Holy Spirit and Pentecost and the life of the church, even more is going to be accomplished. All the way down to when he returns, when Jesus returns physically, at the close of history, Scripture will even then come to pass and all will be accomplished because, number two, the Bible, including the Old Testament, is true, even down to the last detail. And so, number one, the Old Testament is all about Jesus. Number two, the thing that we live, learn here, key truth, is that the Old Testament is true. Number three, the Old Testament is to be obeyed and taught in light of Jesus. And so look at verse 19 with me. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So you're not going to lose your salvation if you don't obey, right? But you're going to be least. There, there, there are different rewards in heaven, just as there are different kind of levels of punishment in hell. There's not levels of heaven, but there are rewards in heaven. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so clearly there's this call here to obey and teach the law. But we must obey and teach it in light of Christ. And that little phrase, in light of Christ, is not to be confused with the way some people tried to use it 20 years ago in a debate over the Southern, in the Southern Baptist Convention over um, um, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. But rather, it's to be used in the sense of like verse 17, like Jesus has come. 
He's fulfilled. So our teaching of the law and our obedience of the law is in light of the fact that Jesus has come. And so again, ceremony and civil, we don't live that out. Moral, we are to seek to obey it. But again, not as a means to salvation, but as a means to salvation, to sanctification and joy and transformation. Again, law leads us to the gospel, which leads us right back to the law to seek to live this, not as like even trying to keep our salvation, but this is how life works best. And then when we fail, which we will do, we remember the gospel again, we get up again, and we seek to live for Christ again. And when we fail, we remember the gospel again, we get up again, let the Father dust us off, and say, hey, go again, son, go again, daughter, and seek to live it out. And so recently I've been watching a documentary on Amazon Prime. It's probably a little bit dated, but it's called America, the Story of Us. And in it, it's pretty high level, goes really fast, but it's like 10 episodes that kind of talk about from colonial America all the way up to, to, to today. And one of the things that I thought it did a really good job of was highlighting how unbelievably important and transformational the railroad was in U.S. history. Totally transformational. Culturally, nationally, the railroad changed so much. And when you think about the railroad, like you've got to have fuel for the fire to generate the steam, the pressure to make the, make the thing run. But it also has to have tracks, you know, upon which to, to direct all that power to, to, to ride along. Well, love for Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, that's the fuel for our engine. But the moral law is kind of like the railroad tracks that direct that power along like its way so that we can arrive at our intended destination. That's how the moral law serves us today. Again, you know, God, law leads the gospel, leads to law. It directs our path. It's the tracks upon which our, if you ever read it, little engine that could, travels. And so in a lot of ways, this verse here, verse 19, is a warning against, big word, licentiousness. Which means, like, I can do whatever I want and God will forgive me. So I can just not worry about anything. Because he'll forgive me anyhow. That's licentiousness. And this verse is saying, no, 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 no. Obedience is important. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is saying, no, 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 obedience is important. But if verse 19 is a warning against licentiousness, then verse 20 is a warning against legalism. Because it points out, in number four in your notes, that the Old Testament is focused on the heart. Now, rabbis and Pharisees didn't, scribes and Pharisees didn't really interpret it that way, but Jesus did. The Old Testament is focused on the heart. Look at verse 20. For I tell you, 
unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, one way that we could understand that, and this is true, I just don't think this is the point of that particular verse, is that we have to have a righteousness that is basically, well, not basically, that is perfect. Because that's what God demands. And we can never do that. And so what we have is the righteousness of Christ credited to us, right? So on the cross, the Father treated Jesus as if he had lived your life so that he could treat you as if you had lived Jesus' life. This is the hope of the gospel. We don't get what we deserve. Our punishment was on Jesus. His, his righteousness comes to us. That's true, I don't think that's what this verse is talking about. I think what this verse is talking about, like when it says, you know, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Like we read that verse, and if you have any background in the church, you read scribes and Pharisees, and you automatically roll your eyes, right? These are those hypocrites. These are just, you know, and rightfully so, Jesus calls them that himself later on in Matthew chapter 23. and calls out a bunch of woes upon them. But contextually, at this time, this statement would have been seen as shocking to his listeners because the scribes and the Pharisees were super respected. I mean, these were the guys who had come up with 248 regulations and 365 prohibitions that like surrounded the law and fenced it off to make sure you never broke it. The problem is that it was only a skin deep following. It was completely external. That's why Jesus goes off on them in chapter 20. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You clean the outside of the dish and leave the inside unclean. You are like a whitewashed tomb. The tomb looks pretty on the outside, but inside it's full of dead things. And so Jesus is saying here that it's not just about doing stuff. But where is your heart? You need a righteousness wrought in you by the Holy Spirit where you have a new heart. And it's internal and spiritual, not just external and transactional. Okay, it's about the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. It's about the internal, not just the external. It's about Matthew 23, 23, focusing more on the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness, rather than the lighter aspects of the law, like tithing your spice rack, dill and cumin. It's about manifesting divine character, not just keeping divine commands. And this is why the next like six sections in the Sermon on the Mount are six different examples from Jesus of how the law is to be applied on a deeper heart level. And every one of them begins the same way. You have heard that it was said to those of old something, but I say to you this thing. 
And what Jesus is doing there is he is correcting the perversion that the scribes and Pharisees had made of the law. That it was just external. It was just legalistic living. Didn't matter what your heart thought. Didn't matter what your heart wanted or believed. Just do these outside things. Right? I mean, it's kind of like with our kids, we used to have a saying when they were small, obey mommy and daddy all the way, right away, with a happy heart. Right? So if they did it all the way and they did it right away, but they're mad about it, or pouty about it, well, they still got a problem. It's the same thing here. Where is your heart? It's not just about external legalistic living. It's about your heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And so, friends, this is what the Old Testament is all about. It's all about Jesus. And it's true. And it's to be taught and obeyed in light of Christ, His coming. And it's focused on the heart. And so simple application, number one, read it. And find Jesus on every page. And secondly, heed it. And find joy on the railroad tracks of God's design. The law leads us to the gospel. And the gospel leads us back to the law. Not as a means of like staying saved for our joy and transformation because Father knows best. Let's pray. Father, help us, Lord, to trust you. We are so quick to trust ourselves. We wouldn't admit that to anyone because that sounds prideful, but we actually are. We make ourselves God. We define so often for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. And we can justify anything in our minds to try to say, no, this, this is okay, this fits for me. God didn't know what he was talking about. That's so archaic, that's so old. He, forgive us, God. You are sovereign over the universe. You are the creator God, holy and almighty, all-powerful over all things. We have no right to even try to barter with you. We can bring nothing to the table. We are dirt. We were made by you out of clay. And yet, you love us. You have provided for us. You have shown us our need of Jesus. You have sent Jesus to live and die and rise again for us. And you have given us the law that first shows us our need of Jesus and now shows us how to live a life that will bring you glory and will bring us joy, which is distinct from just momentary fleeting happiness. Even if, even if fleeting is a couple of decades. And so help us, God to trust you.
by the power of your Holy Spirit, fill us and help us to stop running headlong in the way we want and instead hop on the train tracks of your design for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.